What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am your host, George Tarrant. This is episode 140. We are talking about our chain movie of the week, Thief, as chosen last week by the man, the myth, the eternal oasis of all society's hopes and dreams and futures, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy, and if that is true, it really does bode poorly for society. As if well, things weren't going badly enough. <laughs> but you are good, you are well, you are fine. Yes? Um, I'm alive. So, you know, that um that's probably about the best any of us can say, really. I mean, no we're you know what that puts you ahead of everyone else is dead. <laughs> everyone else is dead. Fuck those guys, all right? Like if they were really so good, why are they dead? You know? <laughs> <laughs> quitters. That's what they are. That's exactly. They guess quitters. Um <laughs> It's very humid this week here in Melbourne. Yeah, we are right into the 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 the, the wonderful time where the seasons are changing, the leaves are falling, and everyone is fucked because the temperature, the weather changes persistently every day, every minute. And it's going to be worse on the weekend. So I hate humidity. And that's why I live in Melbourne. If I liked humidity, I'd live in the fucking tropics. Like, mm-hmm. but it could be worse. You know, we're not we're not half underwater like the. Northern half of Australia, we don't have Russia bombing us. So, you know, the um, the uh, unspecified virus of unknown origin is on something of a down. <laughs> you know, um, See, it, I, should be, I should be more positive. But, I mean, we have the Batman opening tomorrow. Right. I am going to, actually, yes, I'm going to see it on Monday mm-hmm. because it was sold out um, on Friday understandably and i am going gold class because fuck matt reeves i am not sitting in a regular cinema for three hours like it's a long ass movie yeah i mean it's getting very good reviews but still a three-hour movie is a three-hour fucking movie and you gotta earn that and you gotta be comfortable ladies and gentlemen you gotta be comfortable so uh, i'm looking i'm curious i mean doing my best to avoid spoilers and any publicity about it um so but i i suspect like you I, like i've seen a couple of headlines going yeah it's all right mm-hmm. um so um but that's all i have to see i'm um, that they'll be fine about but i do try to avoid the reviews even the, mm-hmm. anything like any kind of indication about what reviewers thought of it in the sense mm-hmm. like i try not to let that you know um poison my recept my own reception of a film you know my own ideas the one thing that customers have been talking to me about, about reviews is, and, and it sounds just like the, the typical recycled review of every Batman ever. Like, well, the villains kind of outshine Batman. I kind of wonder if anyone leaving that review has seen any of the other Batman films. Well, to be fair, Batman is usually the less interesting. And to be fair, that is oftentimes the the case for all superhero movies is that the hero we know eventually he's gonna fucking win he's the they're hero. A straight man they're a straight man to get have all the fun like even if we go back to 89 like jack nickerson got top billing in that film or batman and robin let's not mention it if we can but like it got um you know schwarzenegger got top billing over clooney mm. you know um it's not unusual if that's the best if that's the worst thing i have to complain about in this film yeah. Um, then, then that's fine. Okay. Um, 
So I've actually had a look at a new superhero show. We'll talk about it a little later. We just landed on Netflix, I think maybe today, mm-hmm. uh, called The Guardians of Justice. So where did you see Batman-esque character in that show. So okay. stay tuned for that one. And what channel did you see uh, Guardians of Justice on? It's on Netflix. It landed on Netflix, I think, today. Love it. It is okay. a Netflix exclusive. All righty, all right. But shall we get straight into the meat and potatoes of the show? We shall we our... start? We'll be doing the, the, the chain movie first, so maybe we should start there. Yeah, so do you want to introduce? Sure. So Thief um, was our link from last week, and our link was Jim Belushi, or James mm. Belushi, if you will, brother of the great John Belushi. Mm. Uh, this is from 1981. An ace safecracker wants to do one last big heist for the mob before going straight. I don't think that's a very good synopsis, actually. I think that's a very poor synopsis. Um, but the storyline, really Frank, Frank is an expert professional safecracker specializing in high-profile diamond jobs. After having spent many years in prison, he has a very concrete picture of what he wants out of life, including a nice home, a wife, and kids. As soon mm-hmm. as he's able to assemble the pieces of his collage by means of his chosen profession, he intends to retire and become a model citizen. In an effort to accelerate this process, he signs on to take down a huge score for a big-time gangster. Unfortunately, Frank's obsession for his version of the American dream allows him to overlook his natural wariness and mistrust when making the deal for his final job. He is thus ensnared and robbed of his freedom, his independence, and ultimately his dream. Mm. As a much better synopsis. Yeah. It is directed by the great Michael Mann. Mm-hmm. This uh, is his his first, well, he's actually another one on his filmography before this, but they do say this is his first feature. So I'll take that for a given. Uh, James Kahn plays mm. our protagonist of the film, and his name is Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willie Nelson's got a, probably a bit of a cameo, really. It's the other yeah. big name here is Okla. Jim Belushi plays uh, Frank's uh, partner in crime, Barry. Mm-hmm. And the other names you'll see in here, Robert Prosky, you'll know his face. You won't know mm-hmm. his name. Yeah. He plays the gangster Leo. Dennis mm-hmm. Farina, you'll probably know his name because he's um, – big star in TV and film, but more of a, a, a character actor. I remember he was in Law and Order for a number of years. Yeah. He was in any number of films as well. Uh, and he plays Carl, uh, who is a, a, a gangster's henchman as well. Uh, I think those are your, your your bigger names in the picture. Otherwise, the leading lady is Tuesday Will uh, Weed, who plays uh, Jesse. And she's very good, actually. She does have a very familiar face. And she appeared in Once Upon a Time in America and Falling Down. So um, she did um, some other reasonably sizable pictures, but I think she, um, well, she hasn't appeared in the film for a while. So I don't mm. know if she's dead or um, just gave it away and decided to. Um, no, she's not dead. She's still alive, apparently. Hasn't yeah. worked since 2001, though. So uh, I mean, she gave away the acting game. Yeah, I reckon so. Bit of a surprise because she's actually very, very good in this. Yeah. Um, straight up, I thought this is a, this was not an easy film to find. No. Um, to find, I had to use a downloaded copy of a slightly less than legal website. I think there is, I found an archive copy somewhere online you can watch. Um, mm. I don't know how legal that is. But as per my usual process and such things, if you're not going to let me buy it or rent it or stream it legally, then I have absolutely no qualms about stealing it. It's like whoever holds the rights to this thing, is fucking up royally because this is a wonderful piece of cinema. This is, I found this a real challenge to watch because it feels like, <clears throat> it feels like a blueprint test bed 
for almost everything that Michael Mann has done since. That's um, definitely true. Yeah, and it's it's very hard. It's like watching going back and watching Chris Nolan's um, following, where you can very clearly see he's already got that budding sense of of his style of his approach to storytelling of how he likes to to tell his story um but it's unrefined and it's there's very obvious edits there's like oh yeah, the, the pacing is a little bit off but and and the, the 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 bits that you've chosen to really highlight not necessarily quite right but it's gripping and um i was talking to a friend of the show amy about it saying that I was finding it hard to watch. And she asked me why. And the simple reason for it is because there aren't really any likable characters in this, but the thing, the payoff, like we've talked about the slow burn for many TV shows over the last year and a half. We talked about it with Picard. We talked about it with WandaVision, with the book of Boba Fett more recently. The, the payoff, this pays off that slower pace at the start and it builds that tension and the last pretty much hour of this movie is really gripping stuff i agree i, I didn't in the sense that you can definitely see may his better known works particularly heat particularly mm. heat um is very obvious in this film mm. like the relevance of I mean, I think this is based on a book, Frank Homer's mm. novel, The Home Invaders, whereas yeah. it was based on an actual event, like an actual robbery with North Hollywood um, bank robbery, which interestingly, if you look in his filmography, he made a film a few years in the early 90s called North Hollywood Takedown, which mm. was a TV movie uh, in which um, Detective Hannah is a character. That yeah. is the character, of course, Pacino went on to play in Heat. Um, but he um, he talks about LA Takedown being kind of like a a trial run of what became Heat, but they're based on it based on the same event. Mm. Um, he just said Heat had six months of pre production and a hundred and seventy day shooting schedule. LA Takedown had ten days of pre production and a nineteen day shooting schedule. Michael Mann said comparing one film to the other is comparing free throw coffee to Jamaican Mountain Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see that it's interesting if that was 1990, where did it disappear? 1989, that yeah. film happened. Whereas this film's eight years before that, but you can see the pieces being yeah. arranged on chessboard for him here. You know, the, the character of Frank being somebody who, ha- you know, instead sort of this um, self taught sort of jailhouse lawyer kind of character mm-hmm. who, you know, uh, had this, you know, grand philosophy behind what he did. Um, yeah. And at the same time, uh, having this relationship to a normal life, this desire almost for for a normal life that he he is almost out of reach for someone like him in his world. Very s- distinctive, very similar to the relationship De- that Robert De Niro has with um, the, the I can forget the actress's Amy Brenneman. I can't remember her name. Yes. Um, Edie, the character's name is Edie, I think in um, in uh, in Heat, but very similar type relationship that. That Frank has here with Jesse as uh, Robert De Niro's character in um, Mc- McNally McCartney or something. I can't remember the character's name is uh, McCauley. Uh, McCauley. McCauley. Neil McCauley, that's it, has with his his girlfriend in that film in a sense. Like, you know, there's that famous scene where they're in the diner. He goes, Let there be nothing in your life that you can't drop and walk away from if the heat, you see the heat around the corner. Yeah. And it's not quite as developed here. 
mm-hmm. but but uh, Frank has a very similar philosophy on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, the interesting the, the relationship with a cop isn't quite there in the sense that mm-hmm. the, the main cop in this is played by John Santucci, which is interesting because he's a former gangster. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he he plays Rizzi, who but he plays a very stereotypical gangster, so it was a corrupt cop. Um, you know, look on the on the take. Um, but what really stood out to me in, in the scenes between Arizi and Frank was at one point in time they have a very a cursory, a very old school um, tracing device uh, on on uh, on his car. It's like a beep beep beep. You know, when they got close. Um, but he puts it on a bus uh, going to Des Moines. Yeah, and they're following the bus, and they used that exact story beat. In heat, yeah. Um, he put it on a bus going to San Clemente, um, in, in um, um, uh, in that film. So, but that didn't none of that bothered me because this was still incredibly well done. Mm. Like, I didn't have any problems with the edits or anything like you did. I thought for a, for a debut feature, especially some of the scenes like, um, Michael Mann wrote the screenplay to mm. this the scene between Jesse and Frank in the diner where he's outlining his, um, his vision for his future, and it's, he had a, it has like a postcard or a collage. Yeah, and he built a collage, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of like outlines what he sees in his future, that family and the wife and a home and that kind of thing. And he carries it around with him. Yeah. And he sort of explains his worldview to Jesse. To Jesse. And it's a very unusual scene because he's basically just pulled her physically out of a nightclub where he was going to meet her and turned up two hours late, shoved physically shoved her in the car. And yeah, like, that's. That's a bit much. It's a bit much. Like, I mean, you would absolutely not get away with that shit today. But, you know, he was beating up bystanders who were trying to, you know, intervene and stuff like that. And then he basically drags her into his, his cafe at late at night and starts sort of browbeating her with his vision of his life and where it's come from. It's a weird scenario because he kind of just very bluntly kind of just breaks down everything about why he thinks the way he thinks and what it is he is striving for. And you you don't get a a true idea of how long these guys have been flirting and toying with each other, but he's just like, yeah, if you, if you don't want to have kids, we can adopt. It's like, well, what? This is like the weirdest first date where it's like, okay, hi. So my name's George and I'm 38 years old. I want to have kids by the age of 40. So are you ready for that right now? We're going to get married in the, in six months time. It's weird. It's like, you down for that? Yeah, cool. All right, let's go. But I will pay. It is one of the missteps of a film or one of the bits where he hasn't, it's a clunky part of a film. It's interesting. It's a wonderful part of a film. Yeah. Well, a very clunky part of a film. For started, sorry, start a very clunky part. The came of, I mean, that speech is fucking incredible writing, incredible yeah. acting from the for the actors, and like you're like this guy is a debut screenwriter and filmmaker. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. But you're right, like he meets, but the, the sort of start of this is him talking to Jesse in a coffee shop, and he sort of walks up to her, and you kind of like, maybe he knows her. Does he not yeah. know? Her? Like he talks to her like he does. Yeah. And but I think from reading the trivia online and a few other things. I think he's supposed to be like a strange. That's the first time he's met her. I think he's supposed to be picking her up in the coffee shop. Um, okay, because I think doesn't he say to her sort of like, "Are we going to do this thing or what?" Yeah, something like that. But I think it was. I mean, it was very confusing to me. Like I, you know, about I was a bit like you. I'm like, okay, do you 
Um, yeah, was it was they supposed to be friends? Well, he says here the way Khan and Man talk about the first scene involving Frank and Jesse is vague and a bit confusing. But it just sounds like the scene was reworked quite a bit in post-production to the point where it, it initially it was the two actors' first meeting. Now it plays like they have a history. So yeah. I think that's referencing some of the director's commentary on either the DVD or the Laserdisc or... Well, I think there's one line where he's, like, where they're in the cafe and he's just breaking everything down and he pulls out the, the collage. Um, and I think he says that he's been going in for coffee for, for a while and he's seen... She, he he kind of goes off on one so like you've seen that I change my car all the time and you know you know that I wear these eight hundred dollar suits and all that stuff and it's like okay so what this is I've been going to this coffee shop for a while and I've been casually just catching eyes with her and now this is the first time we're actually talking. <laughs> so really, that was a really strange miss in this film. Like yeah. everything else seemed to go so what was done really. Um, yeah really carefully mm, like a really so, great attention to detail but that one that seems to sort of skip by but i'm like what is the relationship because you're right Rev, we don't know anything about them yeah and the film just tends to mislead us a little bit so i was slightly surprised about that because it didn't make those mistakes in other parts and you know maybe that was a rookie error and they just thought they'd get away with it but yeah. but it doesn't take away from no. from that scene that came afterwards which is some brilliant screenwriting and acting as i said so for me that I didn't notice any of those. It didn't bother me, although I did very much notice, like particularly, like I said, that the bus scene. I'm like, mm. you're you plagiarizing yourself here, Michael. <laughs> um, but it, it was right. It did feel very much like a test run for yeah. what later became what it later became. Heat, um, especially so. Like a lot of the dialogue um, is uh, particularly in the second half where where the, the the any of the antagonistic conversation like where frank goes to um uh he goes into the uh the building and has a very very brutish conversation at gunpoint with the guy saying yeah the um uh gap died you've stolen my money give me my money there's that brutishness and the strange civility to it it was hyper it, it kept on those kind of bits. And even um, towards the end where, um, ah, God, fuck. Um, what's his name? Uh, I'm looking at the wrong fucking film here. Um, There's your problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 the main kingpin bad guy. Yeah. yeah. He is sort of like looking over James Khan's character and just saying, yeah, look at him. And he's just threatening him after after everything that he's done it's like okay i feel like i understand the movie collateral way more now with that that tense relationship between tom cruise's character and uh jamie fox's character in the taxi and just that that very polite but threatening manner that tom cruise has and it's like okay i i understand that more because it's it's a part of michael mann's kind of repertoire it, it is interesting it's rare you see a director pulling so many of the same moves in like mm. one film that he's going it's almost like he's picked pieces out of his I and mean, characters and ideas yeah. out of his film and then reuse them 10 15 20 years later i mean yeah. obviously people like tarantino you can see he you know his style is there from day one 
and he doesn't move away from that really particularly for the rest of his yeah. so far anyway. He's never done too much that's outside yeah. of his comfort zone, you know. Um, and you sort of say same sort of thing with Nolan. You see Nolan's earliest work. You can kind of see some of his tropes. Tim Burton, for example, as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't, they have a style. But actual mm. story elements and beats and tropes and things like that, that is not something you see people... Now, obviously, apart from the, the wink at the audience thing, like when Tarantino will have, like, feet in the car window, you're like, yeah. you get it, all right? We know what you like. But, like, the actual series beats like this is, is mm. rare to see it actually form, you know, uh, such a part of a director's um, almost toolbox that he uses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's almost like maybe this film didn't do so well. I don't know. It has not um, I don't think it won uh, any Oscars or anything of that nature, but um, he won. Uh, he won. A, he was a nominee for the Palm Door. It was a nominee also for the Razzie Awards. So, you know, <laughs> it didn't win either of those. Um, but you know, maybe he just thought, no, these ideas are really good, and I want to do them better next time. And the fact that maybe yeah. nobody remembered this film um, helped him get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. And, but the, the thing, the, the stylistic elements that you see continue um, are the attention to detail. So mm. one of my favourite little nip tidbits of trivia is at least at one point in time, the US Army used to use the, the bank robbery street shootout mm. um, from Heat as a training tool on how to perform a retreat under covering fire or something of that nature. Mm. It was that well done. Mm. Well, I can only assume that Michael Mann probably doesn't know a whole lot about retreats under fire or how to rob a bank. I'm guessing he just had some really good advisors on the film. Like, again, like this film, he actually had actual crooks and actual gangsters. Dennis yeah. Farina was an actual police officer before at the, at the start of filming. So he had actual people working in this film who, who apparently were, um, you know, pretty well, pretty knowledgeable in the world of organized crime. Maybe, I'm assuming he maybe had some of the same kind of experts and stuff yeah. advising him on heat. But what he also did, what he did do in this film, apart from those, that the, the feeling you might get from uh, the way people might talk about actually having actual gangsters and actual police officers mm. on your set, but the equipment that the people, the, the bank robbers and stuff are using yeah. this room is real, actual equipment you would be doing. We kind of think, I think they actually do. There's like drills and welders and shit, and um, they actually use these tools. And those are those are two, particularly the the opening where we see um, Frank um, doing his job with that. The meticulous nature that Frank's character it absolutely nails the professionalism of the character. And when he's using the, the ridiculously big welding torch and it's got like three three guys all doing it and putting out fires and things like that, it really sells the world as real and legitimate. He it, actually was doing it. That thing actually cuts through anything you put it in front of it. It burns at like 8,000, 9,000 degrees. Yeah. It's called an oxy-lance, apparently. Um, so... You know, that was apparently a very difficult scene to film. I can imagine it would have been. Um, but you're like, what a what a request, what an interesting idea for a first time director. Yeah. To to actually insist, no, I want my star, James Khan. He was in the Godfather, big star. I want you <laughs> to learn how to use a magnetic drill and drill into a um mm -hmm. into a safe. I want you to learn how to use an oxy lamp. So you could imagine quite a number of um 
uh, actors would probably be not real comfortable with something like that. It kind of reminds me of that scene in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where um, Leo DiCaprio is using the flame. He goes, oh, it's really hot. Can we do anything about that? And he goes, like, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> um, but I'm like, once I read that, I'm like, wow, that's probably why those scenes seem really, um, I don't know, really intense, but really well, really convincing. You know, you're really yeah. bought into it. If I have a criticism, it's that maybe they spent a little bit too much on it. Like they seemed yeah. very impressed by this. Like, oh, look at this. Well, this looks really good. I'm going to spend 10 minutes on, you know, steel dripping in the safe, you know, because it looked, I got the shot, you know, like I got all this footage and it actually worked. And you're like, yeah, it's not really that interesting to look at though, you know. So you could have moved that kind of thing on a little bit quicker, but. You know, I, I can understand. I, I'll, I'll give him a pass on this one. You work very hard to get those shots. That's so, fair. you know, um, I can understand your um, reluctance to cut them. Mm, yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about the the actors a little bit as well. Yes, yeah, because... so I was about to do the same. James Kahn yeah. is incredible in this film. I think yeah. we forget what an in insanely good actor he was yeah. in his prime. He was. This was a hot streak. Yeah, him, um, this sort of 10 years or thereabouts. So we go back to 81, you know, um, he was in the Godfather films in the 70s. Mm. Um, who could forget Rollerball? Um, <laughs> um <laughs> the original Rollerball, yeah, oh God. a bridge too far. 1941, he did a lot of flops in there as well, but um, but, you know, he's he's when when he's when he's been. On he's been on like misery, possibly his most iconic role. I you know, Sonny Corleone. Yeah, but still, you know, for me as a kid, what my iconic roles for as a younger person, shall I say, my two iconic roles for James Khan were Alien Nation, a deeply <laughs> overlooked uh, science fiction film from the eighties, yes. which I loved. Manny Patinkin as the as the alien. Yeah, um, great film. And the other one was Mickey Blue Eyes from the 90s with um, Hugh Grant. It's like, forget about it. Not forget, forget about, it. about yeah, it. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. I know. Stupid movie, but it was funny. Um, so, and, but, but uh, then even he, he's, he's been relevant for from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Like, people, you say James Kahn to people and they'll go, oh, the guy from Elf. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, <laughs> I'd be kind of insulted about that. But yeah. Um, like, but people loved him in that. Yeah, but still a popular. Look at the uh, look at the look at the Pirate Bay top one hundred downloads. That film's been in there for months. Like, elf? I mean, there's not a lot of Elf. Yes, um, uh, um, especially at Christmas, it was it was near the top. Now, yeah. I'm sure they're not very interested, particularly interested in that the people at the studio because they're not getting money from it. But that says <laughs> something about how fondly it's remembered. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, and he's still working. He is still working. He's got the. He's going to be Megalopolis, which I think is a new Coppola film, the new Francis Ford Coppola film that he's paid for himself. Um, and decent cast there. So he's eighty. And he's still working. Um, but just in this film, like little little bits and pieces in here, really for me impress me. When you realize it, you didn't actually necessarily notice it the first time around, but you go back and look at it. He speaks without contractions. He doesn't use contractions. Um, he speaks, and the idea there was that he speaks clearly. So, you know, he's, he doesn't like repeating himself. That prison, that vibe of someone who's done it hard in prison is an interest in being misunderstood or repeating himself. So he does speaks very clearly and doesn't use contractions. 
Yeah. At the same time, there's a t- he does speak. He's also um, he you know he's not quite as polished intellect. Like I think he uses the word elected dead once or something like that. Mm. Um, and you kind of like guess and that, that apparently was deliberate. There's also another moment where I was quite impressed. Where he um he he explained Marx's theory of um of value at work, labor theory of value at work. He's talking about well. You're profiting from my labor, and I've consented to working for you. And you're like, "Is that Marx? I think that is Marx." And you're like, "How many people, you know, former, you know, uh, criminals, you know, jailbirds go around quoting Marx as part of their um, dealings with other gangsters?" You know, but this guy does. Yeah. And that's what a what a fascinating um, characterization. Yeah. But it, it just further breathes more legitimacy to his character. Like, um, you know, we talked about the scene earlier on between him and Jesse in the in the night, um, uh, the, the, the diner. And he's talking very matter-of-factly about it. But the key point that James puts into those moments is the pauses and the thoughts and the hand movements and... The, those little brief moments where he breathes so that he can use, as you were saying before, the right language to get it across without having to repeat. And it just informs the audience and it fills the character. It's, it is masterclass work. I mean, in, in a fairly forgotten film, it's, it's, yeah. it's an outstanding performance. And the other physical side of the performance as well, he mm. really exudes power. Like, he's a dangerous fucking man. Like, and he doesn't even necessarily need to say anything. He just the way he carries himself, the way he interacts with other people. You don't fuck with this guy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, at the same time as we can see how important things are to him where he loses control. He can have mm. a conversation fairly calmly at gunpoint with a guy saying, I want my hundreds of thousands of dollars back or whatever, yeah. he goes to an adoption office and someone says, oh, you got a criminal record. You're not getting any kid. He loses his fucking shit and needs to be dragged out of there. Just yeah. Little subtle things like that. Well, at least maybe it's not subtle. He was screaming his head off. But, you know, um, <laughs> those sort of moments you really uh, evoke the, the, the real nature of his character. And you walk away going, he was almost a Clint Eastwood-esque character, you know, like, yeah. The way he sort of, I mean, there's a, there's a taxi driver-esque conclusion to this film. That was mm-hmm. my vibe. It kind of did remind me of that. Yeah. So, That's fair. Spoilers, it's a 40-year-old film. The shootout in the, the house at the end mm. is is super impressive and yeah. really tense. Yeah. Yeah. It, Belushi was a bit of a surprise. I thought he was pretty effective. This is his film debut. Oh, shit. Okay. This is also Robert Prosky. As Leo, this is his film debut. This is Dennis Farina's film debut. Because Robert Prosky really impressed me um, in the the development of his character as he started off just just these odd little scenes. And it's like, oh, I'm the bank. I'm the money behind this. And then just trying to kind of pull off that friend vibe all the time it's like hey i got you a house like you know you you want you want a kid i can get you a kid and, and things like that. It's like that's creepy as fuck he's delivering that really friendly but that's creepy as fuck and then 
when shit goes south and he just starts threatening Frank and he kills Jim Belushi's character and just sort of like, look at him. It's like, oh, you, you are fucking scary. And you that are- is his, fe- is his film, his first film. And you'll look at this and you go, I know that guy. He's in stuff. Yeah. Um, he, um, like I just, I can't even, you, you just go, I have seen him in so many different things. Miracle 5034th Street, Mrs. Doubtfire, Last Action Hero. Maybe that's the one I remember him from. Um, he was Nick, the, uh, the cinema attendant who owns a cinema in the um, in the real world. Yes. Because um, that's a film. I think that's a film we both love. Yeah. Um, but he was, you're right, he's terribly menacing in this film. Um, I mean, he's got one of those kind of like Richard Attenborough kind of faces of, oh, he's friendly old guy with a beard. And yeah. But when he turns it on, he's fucking scary. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and he, the way he takes care of business in this film is he does not fuck around. But I tell you what, though, uh, he, um, neither, like I said earlier, neither does, uh, neither does uh, James Kahn in this film. And, uh, well, I mean, you can kind of put together probably what happens to him at the end of the film. Um, but he doesn't pull any punches. He's brutal. Like the, when James Kahn decides, you know, uh, sorry, when Frank decides he's going to go to war, he goes to fucking war. Like, yeah. The scene where we were seen where he kicks Jesse out of the house, or, and again, it was very similar, to, like I said earlier, to the scene where where Robert De Niro walks away from Edie in um in yeah. Heat, though perhaps a little bit more touching in the sense you can remember in that film he just sees her in a crowd and turns around and walks away, mm. and, but unspoken they both know what's just happened, whereas in this one Jesse has no idea what's going on, yeah, and he's like get out, get out, get your stuff and go, I'm kicking you out, I'm kicking you out, leave now. He's really cold and brutal to it. But yeah. I guess we as the audience know where it's coming from because we know what's happened. But yeah. under this, he's doing this for her, not to her. But then yeah. he blows up his house. In the, and these were real explosions, by the way. This is not CGI yeah. shit. Like it's the 81. It's a, then he blows up his bar. He blows up his car dealership. And what? A, and that great moment when he's at the car dealership, he's setting all his cars on. He owns a car dealership. Mm. Uh, he, he gets that postcard, that collage out of his pocket of his life he wanted when he was in prison he screws it up and he throws it away yeah yeah it's it it just the 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 whole sequence of him just kind of clearing house feels almost biblical of raising everything to the ground salting the earth and just like yeah you will have nothing to fucking hold against me motherfucker boom yeah it's you want to destroy me i'll just you you won't destroy i'll destroy myself before i let you destroy me you know um Um, better to die on your feet than live on your knees is kind of yeah. kind yeah. of the kind of vibe happening here. Um, and that I think that sort of really rounds out. I mean, there's not really a whole lot else that anyone else who gets sort of major screen time here. Um, yeah. so the cinematography, as I sort of said, I think is not, apart from some maybe lingering a little bit long on some of the technical stuff that obviously man was very interested in. Mm. Um, I thought it was beautiful. I liked those shots from the top of skyscrapers and stuff like yeah. that. I felt really, really guilty that wasn't able to get a better quality um copy because like just looking at the screen caps on imdb it looks beautiful and the quality that i was watching out it was blurry it wasn't it wasn't a good quality copy and it's like fuck i because michael mann has always made it's again it's another one of his his tools he makes the city that he's filming in part of the film a character in the film and 
I just the quality of the copy that I was watching diminished that for me, which is fucking travesty. It just goes again. Unfortunately, we we are using slightly less and uh, not not ideal means to watch this kind of thing. Yep, give us um, an option, we'll use it, but otherwise, we'll make ends meet. I wonder if this is like a Star Wars holiday special, and he just like Michael Ban owns a copy, owns the owns the rights. He's like, no one will see this because, like, you know, um, yeah, I don't want people to see where I'm. People to see where I'm stealing my ideas from other films. Um, uh, I uh, I actually found myself going, this is a forgotten classic. This is a forgotten classic, um, but maybe also, um, uh, at the very least, from a cinematic perspective, it's kind of a um, uh, a bit of a, an interesting curiosity, if nothing else, because it's a time capture. You see where where he came from. Yeah, I think it's I think it's more important as a legacy piece rather than for me. I I don't know if I would qualify it as a as a classic um, because. Without this, we wouldn't have got so many other great films that Michael Mann went on to create. Um, I think that this is an incredibly formative movie. Um, and it's it's important to watch, especially for any aspiring writers and directors out there, because it's like, okay, this was his debut in both roles, and he managed to do this. This is an inspiring piece for anyone who wants to wants to get into the industry. This, um, I said it before, following by Chris Nolan, Reservoir Dogs for Quentin Tarantino. They're those really immaculately tightly um, controlled pieces that put exactly what the director and the writer wanted on the screen and just go, yep, we are making a statement with this and we're going to hold through from beginning to end. That's and it, it's 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 a great start. I, I mean, maybe I'm being a little generous, but I enjoyed it. It is a bit slow in parts. Yeah. It is a bit dialogue heavy, I guess, in parts for some people. Mm -hmm. It is a little dated in parts. Yeah, like I said, some of it. And as I said, he's in, he's so excited by what he got caught in those technical scenes that mm -hmm. he maybe spends a little too much time on them. But for <laughs> uh, it was a gripping film for me. I enjoyed it immensely. If yeah. you like man's work, if you like Heat, like I fucking love Heat. Yeah, like that's a great fucking movie. If you enjoy that, you're probably going to enjoy this. If you're a big fan of Michael Mann, you're going to enjoy this. Yeah, I'd say it is worth hunting down if Absolutely. you can find a copy. I believe it's part of a Criterion collection on a shiny plastic disc somewhere. If you are so is inclined, it, <laughs> uh, it is not available to stream or download anywhere in Australia. Maybe it's different in your country. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but if you can, there's a fairly decent. Uh, 1.8 gigabyte rip of a DVD on pirating sites. I'm sorry. I'm not feeling guilty if you won't sell it. Um, yeah. So I would recommend it if you see or if you see it around. It's on TV. Yeah. It's playing at the ass store. It's on cable or something late at night. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. it's James Khan. It's, a, it's worth it for Khan's performance alone. Yeah, 100%. The last thing I'd like to talk about um, is also our link for yeah. the next movie, and that is the music. A Tangerine Dream. Good call. Yeah, Tangerine Dream. And um, it is... They were the ones who got nominated for the Razzie, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> Worst music. Which I thought was a bit harsh. It's very distinctive, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's very distinctive. It is very typical style for a Michael Mann movie. Um, it is very of the time. But at the same time, it, 
it still fits with the with the the movie that Michael Mann delivers. And more often than not, I think it actually stands up pretty well. There's some stuff that's a little bit cheesy and a little bit sort of like, oh fuck, no, that's that that hasn't aged well. It's it just sounds just crap. Um, but a lot of it just actually builds on the suspense and that that slow build that I was talking about before and how it pays off in the end. And the, the flow of the music throughout the whole thing is actually really well controlled. So it really is. It's um, it's really builds attention. What is, is of its time. Yes. Um, that was kind of their sound tangerine dream. Was that the synth the yeah. 80s thing? But yeah. fortunately I really like the synth the 80s thing. And part of me kind of went, you could almost imagine Trent Reznor doing a soundtrack like this today. Yes. Um, well before his time, obviously, but like it's the kind of thing he does so mm-hmm. very well. Uh, he's winning Oscars for now. He's yeah. like, the, they're like the, I, I don't know, which is wrong because I'm such a massive fan, but like I would be surprised if they were a big influence on his, his scoring work. I'm not angry, Travis. I'm just disappointed. Well, I have, I mean, someone might, someone, I am going to be on another podcast. A friend of mine has a podcast where he's going to be interviewing people about their passions. Oh, and okay. um, I, I mean, obviously, I thought I said, well, your film would be one because like everyone's doing that. And I was like, well, Nine Inch Nails is a bit of a passion for me. I have seen mm-hmm. every concert they've played in this city mm-hmm. um, bar one since the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was only because I had to go back to Adelaide the next day. I literally went and saw them live, went home, slept for two hours, and then got on a plane and flew to Adelaide. Um, <laughs> but I don't know that. So I, I don't know everything about them. But they are. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's start a petition. Let us try and get Travis. And Mr. Reznor together. Let's have a bit <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, that would be weird. Like, I have no interest in meeting celebrities. Like, what would I <laughs> someone like Trent who's been around for 30-plus years and, yeah, you know, he's won Oscars, he's Grammys, he's, you know, I'm like, you're, you're really good and I like your records a lot. <laughs> I all your records. I'm like, fuck off. He's not going to be interested. But like, and I've heard he's kind of a dick. Um, so oh, yeah, don't don't meet your heroes. I was going to say, I've heard about the time you met um, Alan Rickman and he rudely rebuffed your request to recite. He did it in the best way. He did it in the best way. It was uh, it, it was very Alan Rickman, and I love him. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, how rude. Um, rest in peace. But so, Tangerine Dream is our link, I believe. Yes, Tangerine Dream is our link, and we are going to a movie that I have not seen. It is directed by Catherine Bigelow. It is Near Dark. Near Dark. The vampire movie where not once in the movie are they referred to as vampires. Wow, maybe they didn't have a rights. <laughs> I think back in those days, uh, rights were not so much of an issue. But so yeah, this uh, is um, Lance Henriksen. Yeah, this is basically the same cast from Jim Cameron's Aliens in a vampire movie. And um, for those who don't know um, at home, this is a small town farmer's boy reluctantly joins a traveling group of vampires after he is bitten by a beautiful drifter. Very good. I have not seen it either. And fortunately, it is on SBS On Demand. So um, for free, uh, if you're an Aussie. So um, feel free to watch along if you like. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we talked a lot more than I thought we were going to about um, Thief. I, I kind of nerded out on it. I liked it. So it was, it was but, um, I think we have some bad news for our audience now. Yes, yes, yes. Good so, news for uh, you. You've been waiting for this, but um, I... Um, 
I didn't want to have to do this again. Yes, you did. It's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I was not. <laughs> because I know that a certain Michelle has been leading you, feeding you potential for the next eventuality of this. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, but I certainly wasn't my fault. I didn't make this happen. So um, we did talk last week. We had a an audience request. Yes, we did. Watch, very sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, to watch uh, the Netflix exclusive um, uh, film, The Lost Daughter, starring mm -hmm. Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, who've both been nominated for Academy Award for playing the same character, which doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, I think George has forgotten. Uh, part, I mean, in fairness, you know, there was a dog involved, and you know. We know how they can mess things up. For people wondering why I'm looking over my shoulder like this while I'm doing, if you're watching the live stream, uh, I am now mining a friend's cat for the next week and a half. And mm. I'm a bit paranoid about what it's doing because I haven't had a cat in this apartment before. <laughs> and I just want to make sure it's like not got itself stuck under its bed. Yes, yeah, so I'm talking about you. Um, <laughs> so just keeping an eye on it, it's over there. I'm happy. Just get back in the cupboard, Putin. <laughs> <laughs> Putin is a fantastic name for a cat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So um, there will be, anyway, there is a tradition on this show. If mm -hmm. we don't do our homework, mm -hmm. um, we uh, have to pay the price. Yes. And I <laughs> am about to show you. Just one second. So ladies and gentlemen, this has happened a couple of times and it is entirely in line with the rest of my childhood and adult education of me not doing my homework and travis likes making me suffer so, so it's... <laughs> oh, oh fuck fuck. You, you. only one movie will have this sound and Christopher Atkins singing So that goes for another minute, and I think that'll do. Um, I should note the entire film is available on YouTube. So fuck um, you. I will make sure we. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure it's about an hour and a half. Yeah. Oh so. boy. <laughs> That's um. Anyway, um, for those who uh, want to play along at home, um, <clears throat> it's there. Uh, uh, the pirate movie. Um, there we go. I will. I don't want any sound. I will drop it. You, I, you can pop that in the chat if you like. Um, anyway, uh, the lost daughter. I want more from the from the ridiculous to the sublime. The lost daughter is no laughing matter. Yes, it is. Um, so <laughs> the synopsis of the lost the lost daughter: a woman's beach vacation takes a dark turn when she begins to confront the troubles of her past. Uh, this is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal, 
mm-hmm. was written by Maggie Gyllenhaal as well, based on a novel by Elena Ferrante. As I noted earlier, it stars Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, both playing the same character later or later. Um, Olivia Coleman as, I guess, shall we say, the current day later. Jesse Buckley is the younger version of herself as later. Dakota Johnson's in here as Nina. We have uh, Ed Harris as Lyle. Peter Sarsgaard, who I think is married to Maggie Gyllenhaal. I could be yes. wrong. Yes. Um, uh, he pops up for a bit of a cameo here as well. Um, so this is a fairly confronting film to look at for a few different reasons in the sense that it's um, quite squarely focused on telling a story from a female perspective. Mm-hmm. And it is unashamedly doing that in the sense that we have Olivia Coleman, who is a this is interesting. I was I wanted to say an aged academic. She is 47, 48 when this film came out. Like I was surprised. Is it me or is that a bit surprising about how young Olivia Coleman is? That's surprising. I feel like I've I mean, especially being British. Olivia Coleman, I feel like I've grown up with, and probably because I basically have, apparently, because uh, I feel like she's just been on TV as long as I've been around. And she, that, that seemed, wow. I, so, I mean, I don't want to be rude here, but she looks a lot older than 48. I would have said mid-50s easily. That's um, fair. That's fair. Um, she's not, but, so, she's not I don't know. I assuming she, she actually, the reason I know she's that old is because she tells, she states her age. In the yeah. film, and I went and checked, and that is her actual age. Yeah. Um, so she is a an aging uh, or a middle aged academic, shall we say, who is in yeah. her late forties, um, and is now on a holiday on a Greek island. Um, we see her um, sort of wandering around the island, and as she's doing so, she sort of bumps into this uh, family of mainly mobsters. <laughs> This is the easiest way to put it. Dakota <laughs> Johnson plays Nina, who is married to a mobster. Um, and uh, they are just a repulsive. He is played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. But he plays Tony, and he's quite menacing. Uh, and they're just the most obnoxious kind of uh, American, rude, um, crass, horrible people who just kind of like, we're kind of like she's sitting on a beach, Mm. And on a, on a banana lounge, and they come over and go, Oh, can you please move over there so all our family can sit together? And she's like, No. And they get really snippy at her and shit. And you're like, Wow, that's kind of ballsy, actually. She's kind of a ballsy character. She's like, No, I'm here. Don't fuck with me, right? Um, that seems but- to be Olivia Coleman's modus operandi, though. Like in, in The Night Manager, she's she took no fools. She takes no shit. Uh, and she takes no shit in this film as well, which is actually kind of like, actually made me tense because I'm like, that's so not what I would do. Mm. Um, and it's actually probably quite unusual for a British person who doesn't want to make a fuss. Yeah. Um, like, oh, um, yes, absolutely. I'll go over here and then I'll complain. I, please don't kill me. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like that because they're really ugly, menacing people. But she mm. starts to form this relationship with Nina. Um, it was interesting, Nina. She's sort of looking at her and her daughter. And I guess what this evolves into as she goes, this holiday goes on, is we experience these flashbacks Mm-hmm. Um, go on in Lita's head to her younger days as a mother. Nina is on the island with her small child. Initial one being when her child goes missing one day on the beach and everybody's going around hunting for her. And that takes us back to an occasion in Lita's past where she had missed, lost her daughter. It's never really explained whether they got she got her back, but I'm kind of assuming she did. 
Um, but it's it's it sort of that kind of fear in, that you can see in Nina. I see is kind of really triggering those sort mm. of darker moments from her past. And as she goes on on through this holiday, these things continue happening. She'll see something. She'll get. She'll have a an emotional reaction to something going on around her, uh, which mainly caused by these horrible gangsters who are on the island. Um, uh, and she'll remember a moment from her past. So we experience her, as I sort of said, played by Jesse Buckley as a young and up and coming academic as at, also at the same time, trying to keep a relationship alive with her husband played by Jack Farthing um, and be a mother to two young daughters. Hmm. Um, and through this, we really start to learn a lot about who Leda is and was in that she's, well, I mean, we start to see a few things like, well, hey, it's kind of a shit thing doing a shit thing. The right way. It's a significantly difficult job to be that person, to be trying to um, keep all those plates spinning, particularly mm. the, uh, the parenting plate is the one that we sort of focus in on as being, you know, potentially the hardest one in a sense. She's trying to achieve all these other goals around her. But mm. she's got this massive burden of being a parent to these two children. And it's not a sentence to say, wow, she really hates these children. She hates being a mother and she regrets ever doing it. I didn't get that vibe from her. She mm. obviously loves her children. But at the same time, they can be a crushing burden of responsibility when you're trying to go about all these other things. Mm. And I'm not surprised by that because I've always assumed that children were a massive responsibility you know you meet people yeah. you just let their kids run wild in the backyard and you're like should they be doing that oh they're fine they'll they'll be right you know like they're, they're currently half in the dog's mouth is, is that okay oh it's fine he does over time the kids love that and you're like okay um i, I kind of feel like you, know, you should take your job seriously you're a parent um Parenting is optional, is what I have. Parenting is optional these days. Why don't we have a, 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 an app for that yet? Um, <laughs> no, they don't need to. They've got retail shops that they just... Ah, yeah, so just dump you in the in EV games. Go, go fuck with them for a while. But um, so we, we sort of start to really learn about her, her you know, experience as a young mother looking after mm. these children. Uh, and that's really done effectively for me. Jessie Buckley is a fucking movie star. A okay. fucking movie star. She would be my tip for the Oscar. I okay. haven't seen all the other nominees, so take that with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. um, but she was incredible in this film. And I mean, I don't know if you watched it, but I really enjoyed her in um, I'm Thinking About Leaving last year, the um, Charlie Kaufman film for Netflix. Uh, no, I haven't watched that one. <sighs> I don't know if I'd recommend it. It's Charlie Kaufman. It's fucking weird. Uh, and you don't smoke weed. So, you know, like, <laughs> maybe that's required to understand that film. She's a star, though. She's so good in this. And she's so, she so really communicates effectively what's um, the, the, the trials of being a young mother and, you know, also trying to have a career and have this relationship which um, falls apart at one point between Jack. I found uh, the older, later story a little bit harder to access okay. uh, in the sense that, like, I, I could, ex I, under I feel like I understood the story. There's a potential maybe I didn't. Um, but I, I, I is, by no means is it bad, but I'm just going to put my caveat here. I find Olivia Coleman a little bit annoying. I don't know why. You know how, like, some people just don't enjoy watching on the screen? Like, I know Shay, friend of a show, Shay, is no fan of Tom Cruise and just will not see Tom Cruise films. Mm -hmm. um, actually I know a lot of people like that 
Um, but for some reason, I just uh, I don't know. There's something about Olivia Colman. She's a great actor, but mm. I don't know. I don't enjoy watching her on the screen as much. Like I didn't like her in The Crown very much. Yeah. I have. I have to. The only time I can really watch Jude Law is if he's playing an arsehole or a bad guy. Is there any other Jude Law film? Yeah, he's playing Albus Dumbledore in the new um, Potterverse movies. Great. Well, I guess, I guess having seen one of those films, that's enough reason not to see any more of them. Um, <laughs> um, but there's, I, there's another knife for you, Travis. Just, just take it. It's okay. Um, I guess it's also because her story is a little bit more complex to understand. Like, there's a okay. bit more nuance to it. And let's know, I am not a nuanced guy um abstractisms that kind of thing just doesn't really click with me quite as well as it does with some other people mm. but she one of the things that sort of is a constant thread through this is she finds a little girl who goes missing uh who later actually finds and brings back to her mother mm. in the process when she goes missing she actually misplaces the little girl misplaces her doll which is very similar if not the same as a, a doll that later used to have when she was a little girl and then gifted to her children, who disrespected it and messed it up, which so then she ended up throwing it away as a result. This original doll, and so it's kind of indicated through the film that this this doll is kind of a throwback or a stand-in, okay, for her own children, who obviously don't have any time for her anymore. Mm. There's a scene early on when she tries to call her daughter, and the daughter doesn't really want to talk to her and just wants to whine at her, and you kind of it sense a real sadness and loneliness. In, in later uh, in that moment. But, but and so you kind of understand why she's hanging on to this doll, but, like, it's actually a really big deal because uh, Dakota Johnson's Nina and mm. her family are like, oh, but her daughter's really super upset that her doll's gone missing. And you end up, like, postering the whole fucking island looking for this doll and about what a huge deal it is that you know, her daughter's lost it. Um, and so the way she hangs on to it and what she does with it in the end, I'm not going to spoil that, um, is... Interesting, and I was like taken as it's by surprise about what she did with it in the end. And I was like, I don't know if I really understand that, okay. but it is interestingly followed by one of the best lines in the film, um, delivered beautifully by Olivia, Olivia Coleman, despite my you know, um, you know, uh, <laughs> distaste for her as an actor. And you know, uh, put me in the stocks and let five of rotten veggies. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Philistine on this sort of thing, but it's, it's a really great line and it's delivered fantastically well. Um, it also it does also, I think, glaze over some interesting elements of the story. But I, I guess I was like, oh, I'm interested in this. I would like to see where this goes, mm-hmm. including a um, budding relationship, potentially. Or a, Ed Harris plays the caretaker of the cottage where okay. she's renting on this Greek island. And he kind of makes it known. I'm, I'm, well, my interpretation was he was making it known. He was kind of flirting with her and was like, you know, um, maybe kind of interested in in her. And I'm like, this is an interesting story. I mean, this already is a very adult story. Mm. And it's not something we see a lot anymore. Right? We get a lot of superhero films and we both like that kind of thing, you know. But um, seeing an actual adult story on the screen that isn't based on a, an existing IP and doesn't involve spaceships and explosions um is a slightly unusual thing mm. um and so i'm instantly going well i'm already kind of interested in that but seeing yeah. that kind of relationship an adult relationship forming between two mm, i want to say elder james ed harris is definitely elderly but yeah. you know um you know mrs he's 72 ish 
and she's 47 ish. So there was, you know, it's a quarter of a century gap between the two of them. I'm like, this is an interesting romance here, you know, yeah. potentially forming, but that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and, you know, maybe that's again the director trying to do something symbolically or in an abstract manner, but I've kind of gone over my head, which does happen from time to time. Um, mm. But, and there's, a, there's also this, this section where her daughter does go missing and you know, it just kind of glaze over what happens in that. And you're like, that's kind of an interesting little element. I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about that. But I just suspect that's not what the picture's about. And I suspect it's not really about what happened to her daughter. It's about the bigger picture of building up this story about who later was and uh, the troubles that she had in her earlier years. So it sounds like those ones are more to do with just the director's choice of where the story is going and how the story is being told. I think absolutely. I just think it wasn't, it was not what those elements were not what the story was about. Yeah. Okay. And it just happened to be some of the elements of a story that I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You don't see that very much. And that was like, mm-hmm. it's Ed Harris and like Ed Harris is great and fucking everything. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's also, well, you might see a film occasionally where you have that romance with both of them are in their seventies. You know, but like, Judy Dench and Ed Harris, and they get together. And that's mm-hmm. sort of a one for the older crowd, but like someone in middle age being flirting with someone who's in the, in that winter years of their life kind of thing for, mm-hmm. you know, like that's an interesting angle on a, on a relationship. And, you know, yep. what could, where is that going to go? Oh, it's going to go nowhere. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's, this is a, this is a well-made film and I'm very interested to see what, what um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, does in the future she's obviously a very capable director so, i don't um, know this is this is two hours i didn't actually i would not go so far as to say it should have been shorter mm-hmm. um that there were moments in this where i was like come on come on move it along get mm-hmm. some, something something should happen soon you know um but in fairness not much does happen in this film so mm. I'm not I'm not saying that as a criticism, just saying that as a fact. It is not a it is a it is a talky relationship character focused film. Cool. So there's not a lot of when you say the troubles of her past takes a dark turn, you may be like, you know, a former lover who's a gangster turns up on the island and oh no, you know, <laughs> like nothing like that. You know, it's a dark Hello, turn. My is Esteban and I've come back with your daughter. <laughs> Men daughter. Uh, um, the, the, dark, the darkness is inside her that's mm. a dark turn she her, her, she takes a dark turn and you know the sense of danger presented by the gangsters on the island is there but it's not really doesn't really come to the fore terribly often so mm-hmm. um i think you should be aware of that when you're going into this film this is this is, requires a great deal of attention to detail a great deal of attention on what's going on on the screen. This is not the film to flick on in the background while you're on Instagram or something like that. Um, is it confronting? I, I don't. Parts of it. I mean, depending on your perspective on things. Like I said, like the. Um, I don't want to spoil the line at the end. It's that particular line on the end about latest philosophy on life mm-hmm. that some people might find a little bit confronting mm-hmm. about her attitude towards things. Glass is half empty. Yeah, I just think she's an interesting character. She's not the kind of character you see pres- on portrayed on television, sorry, or, or or cinema very often. In the sense that she is someone who well, I'm not going to give too much away here, but doesn't have any great love or you know of her job as a parent. Mm. I think parenthood is portrayed in a certain way in cinema in the West. It's like 
children are almost a savior you know they save relationships Mm. people who aren't naturally relation you know you may not think you want children just have them and you'll find you love them and you'll be an amazing parent thinking of a film like Hugh Grant in nine months you know with Julianne Moore and like oh he finds out she does want to be a dad after all Mm. Hugh Grant in about a boy he becomes sort of a surrogate parent to um the the little boy I think she became a big star I can't think of his name right now um Tony Collette's son but um Nicholas Holt? That's it. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing I think we see in cinema a lot. You're not allowed or interested, not interested in showing us people who parent and go, it didn't really live up to everything I thought it might be, or it's yeah. really hard and I don't love it all the time. You know, yeah. that's not really something we see done very often. And that's the kind of character the lady here is at a point in time, I don't think I'm giving away the ending here, at a point in time in her story, she abandons her children with her husband for two years. Now, I can't think of terribly many cinematic, you know, female stars uh, in cinema who have, whose character has abandoned their children for two years. Unless it was like, oh, I have to go fight a war and kill the alien queen or something like, you know, there's no good. She's just exhausted and wants to do something else for a while. She has an affair at one point in time. She's a deeply flawed character. I I mean, just from that description, I don't know if I would necessarily qualify that as flawed because she's, it, it sounds like she's inherently very aware of what she needs to self-care. And like, no, I fucking need a holiday. I'm, I'm going to do that because otherwise something else bad is going to happen. Well, that's and, an interesting discussion. I don't know if a bit like a holiday is good. Two years though is a hell of a holiday for leaving your children with your... Um... I don't think there's anyone in the world right now who would not balk at the idea of having a two-year holiday from their life. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I I'm, I would sign up for that. Um, but, you know, then again, I, I, I have significantly less responsibilities than a lot of people in the world. Um, I, um, I, I mean, my landlord would miss me, I'm sure, but, you know, we'll get over it. <laughs> So you're right. It's a good question. Is that a flaw? I don't know, but she's a deeply um, complex character in a yep. way, or this is not something that people explore terribly often. I don't mm-hmm. think maybe if you think I'm wrong, you tell me, you tell me the films and TV I mean, shows that are doing for, that. For, for the kind of, for the anti-parent kind of thing, I've only really seen it in kind of telenovela kind of things. And it's always, it even in, like it's part of the makeup of the character of Jake Peralta in Brooklyn Nine Nine, and this is this is a weird a weird tangent to go on, but he is frequently talking about um, his the parent his parents break up and the fact that his dad was an asshole, but he also is desperately seeking his uh, father's affections, and his dad was very much played um, by uh, fuck, what's his name from uh, the West Wing? Dave, David, not David Bradley. That's uh, from Harry Potter. Um, Fuck, I can't remember. I can't remember his name. But he's played very cavalier. And so, like, yeah, I just like to have sex and kids happen. Um, but there's there's that redemption arc for that. And there's always there always seems to be that redemption arc, whether it's either they end up having a good relationship or the father figure you're chasing for, the biological father isn't the real father that you've had, a la most James Gunn movies. <laughs> he's got a father-son thing. And he does it really fucking well. The Guardians of the Galaxy. He, you know, Peter Quill is. It's such a trope. The father son. Spielberg's made a career of it. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. You're. I don't know that I call it anti-family or anti-parenting. She's just 
think she just hits a wall when it comes to her parenting. We're not given a lot of detail about, for example, you know, again, it'd be a real trope, the fact that her husband's a piece of shit when mm. it comes to being a parent. You kind of hinted that maybe he is, but it doesn't really go down that rabbit hole too deeply with him. Again, it's sort of really vignettes of her life. Um, so you know, I'm not trying to criticize her here. I'm just trying to say this is not a character you see on on mm. you will see portrayed very often. There's someone with this kind of interesting complex backstory. Usually, obviously, we kind of smooth that kind of thing out, and you know, like um, a dead child might be an interesting motivator mm. or something like that. Or the deadbeat dad is is a common trope. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't know if you call her a deadbeat mum. Maybe you would. Um, if a guy took off for two years, you'd probably call him a deadbeat dad. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's that's maybe that's you know maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way. But um, it's it, it. I wouldn't say it's confronting in terms of content. Hmm. There's, no, there's no great nudity. There's one scene, one or two scenes of suggested sexual activity. So um, in, it, that's not really in there, but. It could be confronting in the sense of it's asking from a great or a great deal from its audience of in terms of concentration, in terms of energy, in terms of making sure you pay attention to what's going on. And for for the character that they're they're presenting in Olivia Coleman, I would imagine that that is categorically kind of confronting for what, sadly, women are expected to be. In the society where they are, women are expected. Oh, you'll have kids at some point. You'll be a mother. You'll be a good mother, and all of that. And it's like, well, no. Let let me have my own choice. And it must be either very confronting to have someone who makes that choice, or very liberating to suddenly go, thank you, someone who finally fucking gets it. I bet. I think you're right. You've really hit the nail on the head there. I think it's. I think it's probably going to be. I mean, probably. Women are probably going to enjoy that side of things, particularly. Mm. There might be some men out there who feel the same way. You know, people. Mm. I, I actually have this conversation with people quite regularly. It's like, you know, why do people who aren't ready for children have children? Mm. There are so many options available these days. And that is a very naive aspect to me. You know, like people. I feel like most people who have kids when they don't really feel like they're ready for them do it because that's what you do. Yeah. You know, there's that 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 societal <laughs> expectation. You grow up. You finish school, get a job, meet a girl, boy, girl, them, they, somebody, get married, have children, buy a house, die. You know, that's kind of that's kind <laughs> of what, that's sort of, that's, that's, that's sort of the um the game loop, you yeah. know, like um and you know I, I, a lot of people probably have found themselves at the later stage in that going, hang on a second, this isn't a kind of what i wanted but this is just what i did because society said so and -hmm. you're right probably the majority of people who are going to find themselves having been browbeaten or bullied or you know pushed into that in a way without actually really you know having a choice in the matter probably are going to be women and they might actually i suspect um end up you know finding um an ally in a way here in in latest character they're probably going to have a great deal of empathy for the world that she's in um so I, from that perspective, I'd say it's definitely worth a look. Okay. If you can't concentrate on a story for two hours without, you know, um, you know, without great amounts of action or transforming robots of some description, um, <laughs> there are none that I'm aware of in the film. There are some cars that may have been robots. So I wasn't quite sure. 
Um, there maybe it was an after credit scene that revealed <laughs> that. I'm not sure. But look, if, you, if that's not the kind of thing you're into, if it's a, it's a talky character study and that's not what your jam is, and then give it a wide berth. And you probably would have already. Yeah. If you did some really great performances, especially from Jesse Buckley, and exploring some stuff you just don't see done very often, it's worth a look. Okay. And very... it's on Netflix anyway, so you're yeah. probably already paying for it. Yeah. All right. Lovely. Now, is it time for sponsors? I think we do. We have a sponsor this week. Hey, lovely. What is our sponsor for this week? Apart from the pirate movie, uh, which have generously provided their content free of charge. I hate you. We will be having the sponsor this week by the Sale of a Century Australian Championship Final from 1987. <laughs> uh, that was an Australian game show for those who are unlucky enough not to have grown up in Australia. <clears throat> well, I was lucky enough to be in places that were different. When did you meet Alan Rickman and Tom York and they could ignore you and stuff, be rude? Alan Rickman didn't ignore me. He was just very depressed and I wanted to make him a cup of tea and give him a hug, but it seemed inappropriate. Probably. <laughs> All right. Muslims. Dave. Iran? Yes, it's Iran. Here comes Dave with a late run. Up to you, Dave. Um, I don't know why, but I'll take the hand viewer. Why don't you? Okay, it's... Congratulations, Dave. You won a swivel recliner chair and matching footstool, both crafted in luxurious leather. Valued at $1,100 from Scan Design. A nice prize. The money would have been better. And here, in fact, was the money. That's right. The wild card was with the Esplanade Hotel. The other money was with the Melbourne tram and the Devil's Marbles had the $25. It was all there. All right, it's come to this now. Fast money coming up. Only one place in the final for one of these fine Australian players. The difference is $5 in front. Carey, 75. David, 70. Virginia, 30. And Dave, 28. It's pretty close at that level too. And in fast money, anything can happen. You get a run on. We'll be back after the break to see if it does. the Australian Championships. One player through to the World Cup final. Your scores, Dave 28, Kerry 75, Virginia $30, David 70. There are 60 seconds time, 60 seconds of time remaining in the match. And I would just like, because it is an important game to um, caution the audience, absolute silence throughout the whole 60 seconds would be terrific and very fair to four people who've done a great job so far. Right. All right. All the best, everyone. The time is up there, and that time starts now. What kind of creatures are quails? David. Birds. Right. In which large country is the city of Minsk? Kerry. Soviet Union. Right. What nationality is explorer Sir Edmund Kerry? New Zealander. Correct. Of which ancient civilization was Ovid? Dave. Greek. Rome. In culinary terms, what is a mangosteen? Virginia. Correct. Havana is the capital of what? Virginia. Cuba. Correct. Which British general was called the Iron David? Wellington. Correct. In which of the arts was Benjamin Britten? Virginia. Music. Correct. In which European country is the Karl Marx unit? David. East Germany. Correct. The 18th century biographer of Dr. Samuel Johnson? David. James Bosworth. Correct. Which six-letter title is used for? Virginia. Don't know. Brunei. Sultan. In which biblical test? Yes, Dave. Oh. Correct. Which acid is also called vitriol? Kerry. Sulfuric. Correct. Which London street is famous for medical? Kerry. Harley Street. Correct. Who wrote the opera The Flying Dutchman? David. Wagner. Correct. What kind of animal is a German wire-haired? David. Dog. Correct. What's starting with D is another name for an ash? 
Kerry. Dirigible. Correct. Which Asian country included the island of Mindanao? <laughs> Kerry. Philippines. That's it. <laughs>
as we start, it starts in quintessential from software fashion where there's this epic, beautiful um, opening credits with the deep voice of the, the gods were fighting and then they ended and then the demigods rose up and no one could decide anything because gods can't make any decisions, blah, 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 blah. Now you... And they went out for shawarma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it sort of like ends up falling on you. The fallen will rise and you can take over and control the Elden Ring. And like, okay. Still don't know what I'm doing, but all right. You pick your character and there's multiple classes. You can go from your classic um, Crusader. There's more of your heavy-duty weaponry. Um, you can have like spellcasters. You can have, like, I have decided to go with the Rogue to start with. I love my dexterity characters. And the Rogues are a bit more adept at avoiding attacks and hiding and getting surprise attacks on enemies, which is my preferred method of fighting. Um the character comes in and there's initially there's no tutorial. Now I know the legacy of from software games and it's like, okay, first and foremost, before any other button, I need to find out which button is dodge. Found that. I'm like, okay, cool. Looking around. All right. There's a little bit to interact with. Nothing, but there's one door. Okay. I guess I'll go through that. Door opens slowly. The characters like animated, pushing it open, and then it opens up into like there's there's a, a pathway leading to this open area, and then there's a door on the right. And instantly, the gamer in anyone, we just go, "That's a boss fight. That is." And yeah, it is. <laughs> and in classic from software fa fashion, it's this big fucking scary monster that is terrifying and brutal. Apparently, if you're good enough, you can beat them. You can go through the door. You can find some weapons that will help you much earlier on in the game and things like that. Me, I died pretty much straight away. Then it gets to the main actual opening of the game. You get your tutorial. You wander around and you fight people that are very basic, just so you can get an idea of what a hard attack is, a soft attack, a dodge jumping attacks, how to rest at certain campsites and things like that. The, the classic tutorial phase. Then you go through a door and it opens up into the first big area. And I'm talking big. It's very, very big. And it's beautifully animated. And then it's sort of like, okay, go wherever you like. And in many ways, that's great because that affords players the option of, like, all right, I'm going to head over there. Oh, there's a big bad guy there. They killed me. Right. I'll go a different route. But the downside to that is there's no HUD. Like when you open The Witcher 3, for example, another huge open world game, I was kind of stunned because there was just so much to see and do, so many things to see and do, and people to interact with, villages, towns, cities, monster things, everything, everywhere you go. In this, it's just not. We're not telling you fuck all. Go and go and discover yourselves. Go on. And that's very daunting. Um, I've managed to play about two hours or so. And I've decided that I'm actually going to stream this because I think it'll be entertaining just watching me die repeatedly. What are you thinking about it so far? So are you thinking maybe this game's for me? Because I've, I've been seeing some debate go around, like, is this the right entry point for people who are not a fan of what they do? Which I am absolutely one of them. And I've kind of seen... 
the glowing like reviews and going, wow, maybe I should try this one at some point when it's cheap. Yeah. The sad point that I find with video game reviews is that they're going to get, you know, a game like this, someone's going to want to play it. Like a fan of From Software, if you work at IGN, for example, you hear the Elden Ring is coming out and it's by From Software and you love those games. You're like, oh, can I do the review? So it's probably going to be somewhat biased. I'd say chat here to Australian video game reviewer on YouTube called Skill Up. Based mm-hmm. out of Sydney, I actually kind of briefly met him at um, PAX a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Briefly, extraordinarily briefly. Um, do not tell me, oh, he, I, this guy said he, he wouldn't. No. Um, <laughs> but he did. He does these incredible in-depth, like not IGN ten minute. It's like a half hour review. Mm-hmm. And he is one hundred. He's open and honest about these things. Like he does not give mm-hmm. a fuck. Mm. about um you know pre-pleasing the devs and stuff. Oh, i'm not mm. gonna get a code next time he absolutely took a giant shit on fallout 76 like he had his whole stream of him mm. laughing at fallout 76 he doesn't get codes from bethesda anymore um maybe he will now microsoft own them um <laughs> but he he'll be really honest to go like mm. you know i would not recommend he loves dark souls i would not mm. recommend dark souls and stuff to most people it's not for mo- it's mo- it's not for most people is what he would say. Yeah. He would say Elden Ring is not for everyone, but it's going to be for a lot more people. I think is what he said in his review. Yeah, the um, the fantasy element and the open world element is does make it more approachable overall. the The real sticking point for me is not the difficulty of the bosses and the brutality of the bosses, but it's the game's stoic hard-headed decision to not explain anything in a good way like there was um a uh, a video that um bandai namco the producers of it made and it was sort of like if you're new to from software games this is some of the stuff that you should know and it was far better at breaking it down in a 15 minute video than the whole tutorial and it's like oh okay I, I'm starting to understand it now. And the the customization is very deep. If you want to just get in and have more of an arcadey kind of feel to a game, this is not going to be for you at all. Not disregarding the, the difficulty level. This is a deep, classic JRPG-style system where everything has a number value. And if you want to go into the nitty gritty and invest hours and time into working at how to break the game, and I know people who love doing that. That's half yeah. the fun for them. They're gonna, the min maxes are going to have fun with this, right? They're going to love this game. But for someone who just wants a deep, rich, narrative-driven story that's hard, this one, it's going to fight back because it's like, no, you need to invest in time in my mechanics as well as everything else. Thank you. It's, it's a serious investment of time. I've heard people hmm. say 80, 90 hours. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've been hearing, and I can f- fully believe it. Um, and I think that even the 80, 90 hour mark, you're going to be missing a lot. And oh, yeah, that's, that's not the completionist. That's just yeah. doing reasonable amount of side quests, main quests, yeah. getting good. Yeah, um, 
It's it's yeah. It's from what I've heard at least. That's yeah. what you're looking. You're staring down the barrel of. Did you ever play a lot of Skyrim? I did. Yeah, I ended up playing a lot of it on Switch, and I really loved that game. Um, How would you was, compare this to Skyrim? Because that's a game I did enjoy very much. I would say comparatively, Skyrim is arcadey. Yes, you've got the, the 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 development tree where you can kind of go, oh, I want to put more into stealth or archery and things like that, but. It feels, certainly to me as a gamer, it felt more organic and, all right, I'm going to put my points into this and I know exactly how that's going to affect me. Like, I maxed out my stealth and I could basically stand in the middle of a room and no one would see me ever as long as I crouched. And there was tangible understanding of that. In something like Elden Ring, it's like, oh, you get a 0.6% buff now. Isn't that good? It's like... No, that's <laughs> not. If it I'm not two and a half percent boost, it's it's micro level stuff, and I applaud it because it seems to be a bit of a trend, a slow building trend. I mean, I've said it before. Breath of the Wild was an open world game that let you explore wherever you want, and in that game, you can literally just come out of a cave in shorts and grab a stick and go straight to the end boss if you want. If you're good enough to do it, you can do it. And that is the that is the mindset of all from software games and particularly for Elden Ring. It's like if you want to go to the end, you can do it. You are going to be brutalized, beaten, but if you want to be able to say, "Yeah, I just went straight to the end, did it." Cool. Well done. You you beat the game. Well done. Bravo. Um, it's it's not a game that holds your hand. It's not a game that is easy to... It doesn't open itself up to you and just like, yeah, please, ex explore me, ex have fun. It's like, oh, you failed on that one, that's okay. There's a nice, easier area there. There's no definition on the map as to, like, high-level enemies versus low-level enemies. It's just like, okay, well, their health bar takes up the whole screen, so, yeah, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not exactly the sort of thing where you can run away very easily either. So if you like, there was, um, after, um, a little bit of wandering around, I came to this archway and there's people can, you can leave messages on the ground in stones and you can read them. And there's like one of them I read, it said enemy ahead. And I saw like five humanoids with archery staff and it's like, okay. And then I just looked up and there's just this towering titan with just this half decomposed stomach hanging out and tendrils on his face. And, and it's like, yeah, no, no. I'm going to try and sneak around and see if I can't, if, if I don't trigger him. No, you can't get past that way. And he landed and he took out literally everyone with one swipe, including myself. And the famous you died text comes up. And it's like, okay. You know what? I'm going to try going round the long way. Oh, I can hear a dragon over there. I'm not going to go too far that way because I am not ready to fight a dragon. Oh, there's a thunder god there. I'm, oh no, this, the high road is not the easy road. So I went back and it's like, okay, I'll try just running. And I ran and I ran and I ran and he just kept on following me. You get to a point where it's like, okay, I've exhausted every sneaky option. I now need to 
as the cool kids say, get good. And that ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's what they, when people say, oh, I don't like that game, it's too hard. The classic response is usually, get good. Yeah. Um, which is um, kind of... I've been saying to customers who are like, every time someone comes to the counter and says, yep, I'm buying Elden Ring. It's like, okay, have you played a From Software game before? If they say yes, I say, did you like it? And they say, yes. And I'm like, cool, you'll love this. If they say no, I give them a very clear heads up of saying, this game is hard. This game will beat you. This game will kill you many times. If you want to, if you like games that are a bit more linear and a bit more pick up and play, if you are traditionally playing like The Witcher or the Skyrim games or the Fallout games or any of the Western RPGs, this is a different thing. This is not a Western RPG in the slightest. This is a JRPG with fantasy elements that are popular and quite common now because of the popularity of George R. R. Martin and The Lord of the Rings and Wheel of Time and all of that sort of stuff. So Western audiences can relate to a lot more of this content more compared to a lot of very died-in-the-wall Asian-inspired JRPG material where they're talking about different types of gods or entirely new gods that they've created. These ones is like, oh, okay, I get an idea what the Tree of Life is and I've got these points of references even through pop culture of who that is or what that is and so I have a rough idea. So it's more open on a story basis, but the game itself is not. It's it's a From Software game. I reckon I might... If it ever ends up on Game Pass or something in five years, maybe I'd give it a burl, but I just mm. don't have 80 hours to stick into a game right now. Yeah, it's... I'm bizarrely enjoying it, but at the same time, mentally, I'm... I'm being cruel to myself. So this game being cruel to me takes a lot of effort out of me being mean to myself. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was, a, that was a, that was a walk, but we got there. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about it. because no, it is. If, you, if, you, if you're one of our people who enjoy gaming and some of our listeners do, some don't, mm. if you are, then that's, that's what's on being on everyone's lips right now. That or, um, Mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild was it the other no, one? The Horizon other Forbidden West. Forbidden West, which is for PlayStation yes. only. So yeah, um, there's a bit, there's a bit of stuff going around. But Elden Ring has been all over my YouTube's. People reviewing mm-hmm. it and like just splooging all over how much they loved it. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a shame because I really liked Skyrim. I sank mm. 300 hours into Skyrim, and I'm like, I would love it if there'd been like I know Elder Scrolls Six is coming, mm-hmm. but that could be like two or three years knowing Bethesda. So, well, I think um, the, the current plan is um, if, if timelines keep going and they don't miss deadlines, I think it's going to be Starfield is the next game from Bethesda. Yeah. And then it's going to be Skyrim or Elder Scrolls six or whatever they call it. I hold our breath. Mm. The next one that I'm looking forward to though, is the end of this month, Tiny Tina's Wonderland. Yes. Um, from Gearbox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons meets Borderlands. I'm okay with that. <laughs> See how that goes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah. So that was that was me talking about that. Um, Can I talk a little now? I'm gonna I'm gonna go 
two things quickly, and that's kind of me for today. We might even finish on a, on a sprightly under two hours. We'll see how we go. We'll see how um, we go. Uh, Guardians of Justice. Mm. Let's just like get the, all the interesting ones out the door. So as I said at the start of the show, this has just landed, I reckon, today. Like we're literally like it was like there's barely any reviews on on INDB. Mm-hmm. Um, there's barely any information on the characters on INDB. <laughs> this is fucking weird. Okay. This is really, really weird, and not in a good way. Oh, okay. So I am an episode and a half in. I had a quick squeeze this afternoon after I finished work, and while okay. I was eating dinner. After keeping the Earth at peace for 40 years, alien superhero Marvelous Man leaves a mission uh, to his both his, uh, to both his bitter, violent Lieutenant Nighthawk and idealistic The Speed to stop nuclear war. Marvelous Man, Nighthawk, The Speed. Whatever could that be? I don't know. Um, it stars... Stars, inverted commas, <laughs> for people who are listening at home. Denise Richards, uh, Dallas Page, Diamond Dallas Page, is in a starring role as Nighthawk. Like, and don't get me wrong, I love DDP. Like, he was yeah. one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Hmm. Um, and DDP yoga is the bomb. If you haven't, if you like yoga and stuff, it's worth a try. Um, <laughs> but he's no actor. <laughs> no. Um, he was in a Rob Zombie film once. I remember seeing him in that, but I didn't see him in many roles, but he's in quite a central role in this film as Nighthawk, who is essentially the Batman uh, facsimile, you know, the dollar store Batman. We've got Batman at home in the cupboard. Um, <laughs> and Shani Vincent is the other one who plays the speed, which is the, the flash knockoff. And most people like, who the fuck is Shani Vincent? Uh, she is Australian. That's why I know who she is. She was in Home and Away for seven years. And she was also in one of the better horror films of the last decade, You're Next, in 2011, oh, yeah. um, which I really, really liked. And I thought she was going to go places after that, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so she really, really hasn't. This show is weird, weird, weird. It is created by Adi Shankar, who I believe is best yep. known for doing Castlevania. Mm. I'm vaguely, I know it's a video game. I never played it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the TV show was quite well received. Yeah. Um, I didn't watch it. Um, but this is fucking weird. So it, it's, um, it's obviously a parody of the Justice League. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mixes mediums quite significantly. So it's quite a lot of animated material uh, mm-hmm. of varying qualities. So it might go from sort of anime level, you know, fully quality animated intro into pixel art into live action. Okay. So it's really mixing its mediums up interchangeably throughout the episode. Okay. Uh, and they're short episodes. They're like 25, minute, 20, 25 minutes or so per episode. Okay. Um, Marvelous Man, Superman, mm. um, kills himself on live TV with a uh, their version of, uh, was it Kelsey, um, Caltonian bullet? You know, like, Krypton, Kryptonite bullet. Okay. Um, and he kills himself on live TV because he's tired and stuff. And like, so, you know, the, the show's basic gist so far has been the rest of the Guardians of Justice um, 
you know, um, get together to, you know, um, try and figure out what happened because maybe it was a murder. You know, was he re- did he really commit suicide? We wouldn't do that. Surely he wouldn't. If he did, why? Is somebody behind this? Okay. Um, and the insinuation that somebody in the Guardians was behind, somehow involved in 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 the murder, inverted commas, of Marvelous Man. Okay. Um, but, God, it's weird. So it's it's... It's quite. It's not for children. Yeah, it's quite quite um, graphic in parts. I would say not as graphic as the boys or Invincible. Okay, but still quite graphic, and so definitely, definitely not for children. Mm-hmm. But the acting is fucking terrible. Oh no, it's terrible. Like I mean, silly. Sorry, I don't. I feel like maybe it is. <laughs> they feel kind of go. You had to know that this is not good because the animation, some of the animations, high quality stuff. Okay. So that says to me, that's not cheap. No. No. I mean, it looks like quality self shaded animation. Now, that could be still done on a computer. I don't know. But mm. it's quality animation. They have not cut funding on that. So okay. that says to me, this has a budget. Mm. This guy did Castlevania for Netflix. So he has a bit of a track record. I assume he had some money. Yeah. Um, it's been popping up on, you know, they're advertising it, Netflix on their platform. They're not burying it. So it just seems really odd that this product would have such a cheap look. I mean, it's, and it's a different type of cheap look. So what was that Jupiter show? Remember that was the superhero Jupiter Rising. Yeah. Jupiter Rising. Yeah. It was not, is that not, that's not the one with, um, that's not the Wachowski Brothers film, is it? That was, no, that was Jupiter Ascending. Ascending. Oh, completely different. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean the same thing. Um, um, but um, that one looked enough. Remember that one looked cheap. Yeah, but it looked like cheap trying to look expensive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, this one looks like it's trying to evoke the aesthetic of an early '90s look, like a film you would see on um, MST3K. Okay. Like, uh, but so I, I can only imagine that's deliberate. Like they'll have two police investigating murders, and one of them will be a small person. You're like, okay, this is supposed to be a joke. Like, because that's a sort of piece of casting there. Um, it's just really fucking weird, and I can't figure it out. Like, so Dallas Page, he's not an actor. Mm-mm. He's not an actor. He's he, he's great value, great wrestler, interesting dude. Not mm-hmm. an actor, and it comes to show. It shows in the first moment he's on screen, and he's in it a lot. He's a really oh, no. important character. Why would you cast? You could cast a lot of people. Why would you cast Dallas Page? It's not like he's got. I mean, it's been twenty years since he's, um, you know, his peak okay. as a professional wrestler. So he's been retired a long time. It's not like you're going to bring a legion of fans along to check out Dallas Page's new thing. Like, you know, um, I will say though, in his first fight scene, the first guy he dispatches, he does so with a diamond cutter. I'm like. I saw that. <laughs> I understood that. Um, Denise Richards has always been a terrible actor. And mm-hmm. her, again, her peak was 20 plus years ago. Johnny mm-hmm. Vincent, I think, is a fine actor uh, in her moment, but she's doing her Australian accent in this. Okay. And it's kind of like, it, it kind of feels like home and away level acting. Um, okay. And I'm like, I know she can do better. So I'm like, again, I'm like, is this deliberate? Some costumes look like they're kind of made up of cut out, uh, you know, those foam mats they put on the, at the gym. Oh no, they, they, they look like they've been cut up and turned into costumes, and that's what they look like. And they really look like that. And you're like, that 
it has to be deliberate. Surely that's deliberate. You're doing this on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing is that the storyline is just so silly. I mean, you know, it's not exactly, we're not exactly short of mm. Justice League parodies. No. You know, we, like I said, we've got the boys. Rip complete Justice League parody. As is Invincible. Really, really a Justice League parody. Like, and you've had, we had the Watchmen TV series a year or yep. two ago. That also was a parody of the Justice League, maybe a slightly better disguise one, but that was inspired by it. I mean, yeah. the superhero deconstruction thing is kind of done, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, even that Jupiter Rising show kind of had a vibe for the same sort of thing. Yeah, it did. Um, and that failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. Like, I'm kind of like, I want to skip to the last episode and go, is there a joke here I'm missing? It has the whole series dropped or is it I'm not sure there were at least two episodes live tonight okay um so i'm i can't say with any degree of certainty there are seven episodes apparently okay um and it's been up so long they've all got names mm-hmm. so i don't know what to make of that but um well i'm going to say it right now travis uh, travis you are a trendsetter because guardians of justice does not even have a wikipedia page yet it really was. I was looking for information about it the other day, and I was I saw the ad for it. I'm like, I saw that I followed DDP on on Facebook, and he said he was going to be in it. I'm like, is that a joke? Mm. And I tried to find information about. It. I literally couldn't find anything. <laughs> um, so you know, um, and yes, all seven episodes are up on Netflix now. Okay. Uh, look, I guess if you're curious, I mean. <laughs> I don't know, but I can recommend it. It was like a, the weirdest thing I've seen in a long time. I can't quite figure out what it is I'm watching. Um, I don't see myself. I might finish the second episode just to see if it goes anywhere more interesting. Um, but I doubt it. I doubt I'm gonna. I doubt I'm gonna hang in there for much longer. I'm kind of like, oh, what is this? What were your thoughts on the boys? Did you uh, finish watching season two? I love the boys. The boys is great. I can't wait for season three. Are you going to check out the animated series? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. It looks very different. It's mm. quite unusual. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they've earned a look. You know, the guys who made the boys have earned it because season one and two about were wonderful. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And while I'm kicking, sticking the boots into things. Yeah. Oh, we are We are going to be ending the show on uh, some, some boot kicking because that's what there, I want to do. I'm going to curb stomp some more here. This is going <laughs> to American History X style. <laughs> I on the weekend uh, checked out for the first time in a very very long time the 1997 uh, legal mystery thriller The Devil's Advocate. Oh yeah, starring Keanu Reeves, Al Pacino, and a very young Charlize Theron. Yeah, um, Jeffrey Jones, Craig T. Mm-hmm. Nelson, Tamara mm-hmm. Tooney, if uh, you have a familiar faces in there as well. Now, interestingly, I've had my IMDb account for probably 20-plus years. Mm-hmm. That says something about, one, how old I am and how long IMDb has been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, occasionally I'll look at a film and people will be like, what do you think of that? And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't like that much or whatever. And, and I'll look at it and go, huh, you rated that film a 7 in 2000. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I had at some point seen this film in the past and given it a 5. I think I was being a bit generous. Oh, 
An exceptionally adept Florida lawyer is offered a job at a high-end New York City law firm with a high-end boss, the biggest opportunity of his career to date. Mm-hmm. So Keanu Reeves plays the young hotshot lawyer, Kevin Lomax, who's never lost a case in Florida. <laughs> his wife is played by Charlie Theron as Mary Ann Lomax. He, mm-hmm. We see him um, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat in a case where he is defending a an alleged child molester. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the idea in this is we are really setting his character as someone who has, well, he's a lawyer, so he's completely amoral in the mm-hmm. sense that he, at, while the um, victim, the alleged victim of the assault is testifying about what he had done to her, he is manipulating his fingers under the desk in a, uh, the defendant is manipulating his fingers under the desk in a suggestive manner. And mm-hmm. Kevin notices that um and clocks that and then sort of has a you see him have a a famous sort of bathroom scene where he's sucking himself up Mm -hmm. a journalist comes in gives him some stick about well mate you can't win them all and he comes out and absolutely um tears the um uh, alleged victim a new one and wins the case yeah um in doing so he uh, is celebrating he's offered the opportunity to come to new york and apply for a job a big name law firm for a lot of money He's offered all this money to just come and visit and meet this law firm, which he decides to do. The law firm is run of course by Al Pacino who plays John Milton. And I believe uh, every Al Pacino line in cinema here at fourth should start with who are I'm John Milton. <laughs> <laughs> um, and John Milton, Milton, um, you know, he wrote Paradise Lost. So it was mm-hmm. all biblical shit going on in this film as it does quickly become apparent that something's not quite right in this film. And mm-hmm. long story short, Al Pacino is Satan. Yes. Of um, course, Satan is the head of the law firm. He's, well, what a stretch. What else would Satan do? <laughs> um, and he is grooming Kevin as his protege. It later comes, and there's always sort of mysterious shit happening at the firm. Like Jeffrey Jones plays an athletic lawyer named Eddie Barzoon, who's mm-hmm. apparently talking to the Justice Department, and he is hunted down by these spectral figures whilst jogging around Central Park Lake and dies of mm-hmm. a heart. It's beaten to death, actually. It's beaten to death by these homeless people who are possessed by mm-hmm. demons. It's insinuated. All the while, Mary Ann Lomax is going insane. Uh, at her property because she'll go out with um, some of the other wives and girlfriends of people who work at the firm and she sees their face turn into demons and stuff and mm. she cut their hair just the way uh, Al Pacino's John Milton tells her to and she she accuses him of rape at one point while he was actually in court with Keanu Reeves and mm. she ends up being committed and killing herself. I mean, well, they put poor old Charlie through the ringer in this film. Oh, yeah. She appears naked at one point, which is, uh, I had no idea Charlie's had ever done that. Um, she was a bit creepy, actually, because she's so fucking young in this film. She's like 22 or 23. Yeah. Uh, and apparently turned down a role in Showgirls for this. Um, I don't know which one would have been better. Probably this. Yeah, this one at least. Yeah, in, in hindsight, this one's better. It didn't hurt her career, at least. Elizabeth Berkeley didn't go very far after the show goes. This film makes absolutely no sense. The story is fucking terrible. It's so badly written. 
It is directed by Taylor Hackford, who is not a name I am overly familiar with in terms of directors. Mm. He has done a few other things as a producer. Yeah. As a director, he's done some uh, bits and pieces around the place. Um, he directed Ray, the Ray Charles picture, Proof of Life, Dolores Claiborne, um, but not a whole lot. It was written um, based on a novel by Andrew Neiderman, the screenplay by Jonathan Lemkin, who I don't know, and Tony Gilroy, who is a familiar name. Yeah. Um, I think he did one of the Bourne films, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, he definitely yeah. wrote, wrote, he definitely came, he brought in to script doctor and finished directing rogue one yeah um but he's kind of um he directed that's right he wrote the uh he directed the born legacy yeah uh, and he wrote the screenplay for the born identity supremacy and ultimatum yeah um so he went on to be doing some better stuff than this but my god this is a bit like someone's taken a john grisham story and then whacked stuff from the exorcist and the omen into the same pot and giving it a stir and gone, it's a movie. <laughs> um, but, and it doesn't make any sense. The story just jumps around all over the place and it's like, mm-hmm. hang on, what? Hang on, hey, why, why are you doing that? You know, um, it's, it's in the, it's insinuate, sorry, it's revealed at the end that, that Keanu Reeves' mum like had sex with Al Pacino in New York in the 70s. So he is the son of a devil and mm-hmm. really wants him, he's really pushing him to um, have sex with his half-sister who also works at the law firm to... Young Connie Nelson. For reasons, um, you know, because it's sexy, I guess. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and it's just a fucking mystery to me how this thing that, got made with such a... That whole thing doesn't make any sense either because... You know, that at, at the final, I'm, I'm going to spoil this movie for people. He's there. He's just about to, he seems to be willing to just give in and have sex with Connie Nelson and Al Pacino's there looking very happy with himself. And then Keanu Reeves just pulls a gun and shoots his head, uh, shoots himself. And then Al Pacino does really dramatic go and there's fire behind him and everything. And then it just suddenly flashes to Keanu Reeves is still in the, um, the toilet. Flash back to him. His whole thing was a dream. Yeah. So if if the devil was able to do that, why did he scream? Why why <sighs> why why have this dramatic thing? As I'm like, I, I, I think I think you understand though. I mean, every now and again, you're playing a game. You forget to hit the quick save button. You've got through the next hour of a game, and you're like, "Fuck!" <laughs> I get killed by a boss, and you look at your save file, and you're like, "Oh, it was like." An hour ago, I'm gonna replay that hour of game now. You know, it's a frustrating moment in time for anybody, okay. really. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so, that. but it, it, even in the end, it's insinuated that you know, despite the fact that this time Keanu Reeves makes a different choice in that courtroom and doesn't get the um, the child uh, molester off. Hmm. It's in it later in the original run through. Uh, John Milton tells him, oh, they found him uh, last week with a 10-year-old girl in the back of his car dead. Mm. And so this time, the actual child, he, does, he doesn't get him off and make sure the child molester gets convicted, but he loses the case in the protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, and then he's chased out of the um, courthouse by a reporter going, oh, a lawyer with a, con- a, lawyer with a conscience. It's a big story. Come on, talk to me, talk to me. And he agrees to talk to the um, journalist the next day. And the journalist, of course, is the devil. Um, so even and- in... Nice. Even in defeat, the devil still wins. Yeah. It's such a tiresome movie. We had to break it into two different parts to make it all the way through. It's, like, it's trying to pull the 
those sort of spooky little things that worked really well in a film like The Omen or obviously The Exorcist, which is an all-time classic, or just mm-hmm. any kind of scary film that actually works. And those supernatural elements just kind of separate like oil and water from the legal drama. The legal mm-hmm. drama is actually kind of interesting. There's uh, he gets uh, um, Keanu Reeves gets assigned a big case where uh, Craig T. Nelson's character Alex Gander Cullen, who is a um, some sort of rich person in New York, is accused of killing three people, yeah. and he's put on trial. And it's like this is your big test, Kevin. You know, is it Kevin? Yeah, and you're gonna you know get get do you get this guy off or not? And that whole drama, and he's, is it you got a little you see a little bit of discovery about you know backgrounding on uh Cullen's story where was he you know was there a um did he have an alibi is his alibi lying and that kind of thing and like I mean I am a fan of police procedurals and core in dramas I mean but that was because that kind of made sense to me it was kind of a lot more entertaining than um I remember the, the scene where he's coaching one of the witnesses and he just off the fly just goes is he circumcised and it's like that's actually really good that, that yeah, you've been boning him for the last six months. Surely you'd know, you know. Like, yeah, it, it was actually quite a good scene. But you're right; everything else around it is like, what? <laughs> Keanu just doesn't. I feel like I like people love Keanu. Mm. Don't be wrong; I love Keanu too. He is good because he stays in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he, when he was younger, we talked to him a few weeks ago when he did, um, you know, my own private Idaho. That was mm-hmm. a step outside his range for him. And he mm-hmm. did quite well in that. But I think for the most part, he sticks to what he's these days, at least he sticks to what he's good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't recall him playing a villain in any of his films. Um, I'll happily be corrected if I'm wrong, but I don't think he has. Um, and he's kind of not really a villain in this in the end, but he's a pretty slimy character. A pretty slimy, sleazy um, uh yeah, lawyer who's on this downward spiral into you know, the clutches of a devil, sort of. Um, apparently, the character of Don John in Much Ado About Nothing, which is fair. Yeah, he's a villain in, in Much Ado About Nothing with by Kenneth Branagh. Haven't seen it. So that's the fact we have a first and only time. Uh, maybe he could play a villain, I'm sure. Not this yeah. kind of villain, though. Um, cause I kind of just don't think he comes across as slimy and sleazy very well. Maybe a very earnest, you know, misguided villain. Like maybe he would have played a good Thanos. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, he doesn't, he just, this role doesn't suit Keanu at all. And he's not convincing in it for me. Mm. He's playing against type in a way that doesn't work. Mm. Um, that's, that's what fair. also doesn't work is there's actually a scene in the film where they're, they're having a conversation. I can't remember exactly what it was about. Might've been with Alexander Cullen. And I'm like, wow, where the fuck did they shoot that Donald Trump place? And they fucking did. This was shot in Trump Tower, part of it. And it was shot in Donald Trump's actual apartment. And I didn't even, I swear to God, I didn't know about it. And I just gone, oh, look at that. It's so ostentatious. It must be Trump's place. Is that Trump's place? And it was. Um, he also gets name dropped in during a boxing match. Yo, Donald Trump was supposed to be here. And it's sort of interesting. Like in, 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 in 1997, that would have been like, ah, oh, it's a nice little nod at the real world. Yeah, like now you're just going, ooh, yeah, well, just dirty feelings. Like that scene where Donald Trump turns up in Home Alone Two. It's kind of funny in the early '90s, and now you're just like, ugh, Christ <laughs> Why couldn't you drop the paint can on that guy's head? <laughs> um, 
I, I don't know if I've savaged this film sufficiently, but it's got a 7.5 audience score or user score on IMDb. Uh, 60 meta score. I just, even a 60 is kind of generous. This is a I, bad film. I think that those are just Keanu Reeves fans, Charlize Theron fans, and Al Pacino lovers because none of, none of them are putting in their best work in this. Al Pacino is just painting the walls with everything where he's kind of in his mad rambling and he's all like look but don't touch touch but don't taste taste but don't. all that so like okay wow you are really just pushing 11 on the button on you you just go yeah <laughs> uh uh one of my favorite scenes he um they're on a um subway train where they get around on the subway a lot and mm. uh some guys go what are you looking at us there and um to, they're trying to start a fight, and um, Al Pacino, because the devil speaks all languages, speaks to him in Spanish and tells him one of them that his um, girlfriend is cheating on him with his brother, and if he goes home now, he can catch them. Mm. Um, and and I guess what I enjoyed most about that particular scene was uh, having a, an, a Spanish speaker next to me watching the film with me was able to tell me that his Spanish was woeful and that uh, it would have been very difficult for anybody who did speak Spanish to make a lot of sense of what he was saying without sort of stopping and going, huh? What did you say again? <laughs> so um, it's really nice when you have access to a resource like that and go, does that Spanish make any sense? Oh, he just learned it phonetically. He doesn't actually know what he's saying. <laughs> but um, in case you were thinking of going, it popped up. It's on um, It's on, on Netflix. Um, if you want to see it, I've decided to downgrade my previous rating from, nine, from 2000 or whenever it was. And make mm -hmm. it a three. It's a pretty bad movie. It's not sexy. It's not scary. It's not funny. It's not entertaining. It's just long. Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. Now my last little bit is going to be very short, but it is very much kicking the boots in to the Harry Potter 20th anniversary HBO Max special. <laughs> I like the Harry Potter books. I really enjoy them. They're not fantastically written pieces of literature that will last for decades but they are well-written children's books and the movies generally are good they start off very basic and they get better and the fantastic beasts and where to find the movies there's some interesting ideas they still have not found their feet and i don't know whether they're going to get a chance to find their feet considering production problems casting johnny depp and then having to change johnny depp and just not actually getting well i don't think actually having a, a, a full story in place and we, this is something that we've talked about a lot but regardless time makes slaves of us all and we are officially 20 years after the release of the first harry potter movie and as apparently is the case now anniversary specials are rife throughout all of the industry with friends with this there's a seventh anniversary critical role one that's going to be happening i didn't realize that seventh anniversary was one that was really lauded and celebrated like that but okay sure sure um but this <clears throat> it's fucking awful it is i'm sorry but rupert grint Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe are not exactly charismatic people. Um, they do a good job with the characters that they portray in the movies. That is fine. And Emma Watson has done some interesting work. 
n nothing that set the world alight in my opinion and she does now this sort of like um changing the world kind of stuff which is very good rupert grint is actually starting to do some interesting stuff on savant the m night Shyamalan apple tv show and Daniel Radcliffe has definitely worked very hard to shed the Harry Potter performance. But still, none of them are particularly compelling, engaging people. And having the three of them just sit down and talk about it when they're, what, 28, 29 years old or something like that, and they're... So it's it's dressed to be like this real nostalgic look back on this history is like yeah but you're still kids it doesn't they, they even say it in the thing it's like it doesn't feel like we should be having an anniversary right now it feels like it was still only a couple of years ago and it does still feel like a couple of years ago because the last harry potter movie came out not that long ago comparatively and it's too early to have this and it's like okay you know what maybe we don't focus on the kids maybe we'll focus on the the adults um no no it's all about their interactions with the kids and you don't get any interesting insight into the background of it there's a little bit the most interesting one is jason isaacs who plays lucius malfoy and he is woefully underused. Obviously, they've had a lot of deaths in that, like Alan Rickman, no longer with us, which is a shame because he would have been a great voice on there, but it's not really his thing, I don't think. Um, uh, Richard Griffiths, who plays Mr. Dursley, is past. Um, Maggie Smith is very, very... Uh, uh, she's very old now, and she was suffering from... I think she was recovering from cancer. Um, so they weren't really able to get her. Um, Rafe Fiennes, who plays Voldemort, he's got like two minutes of screen time. Um, Helena Bottom Carter and Gary Oldman are there, but they don't get much screen time. It's like, okay, this is literally a puff piece to get people interested and rewatch the Harry Potter movies. And this is my warning to Hollywood. Stop it. Just stop it. These anniversary things are not necessary. Wait until they're fucking 50 years old. Go back to them when time has actually passed, when we aren't still just fucking watching them. And maybe these movies will always be watched because they're great for the young kids to grow up with and all of that stuff. But fuck's sake, the prestige of this Harry Potter thing, bullshit. No. Fuck off. Enough also worth it. mentioning, the author of the books wasn't really involved either right yeah. she was a, she so, did a neo chat or something but she certainly wasn't in the studio with them right she was they they used footage from 2019 because people don't want to associate with her anymore and you can see it very clearly and the fact that every single bit of footage that she appears in it's filmed 2019 up in the top corner so like yeah you're just also reminding us of what a what a dick she is sorry yeah it wasn't that she didn't want to be involved i don't think nobody wanted her involved. Want her involved yeah i think she did i think she was kind of pissed that she wasn't yeah yeah but it's it's a mess and they it would have been even at least interesting if the three main characters emma daniel and um rupert had just actually had this at the end just gone okay so how has this informed your career going forwards 
because they've taken very interesting things. Daniel has purposefully taken on, he was a fucking corpse in Swiss Army Corps. That's a yeah, very, very far, far thrown. He was in uh, Guns Akimbo. He's done some really unusual He's things. He's playing Weedow Yankovic in the Weedow Yankovic movie. Yeah. I would have loved to hear him talk about that. And Rupert is now working with M. Night Shyamalan, and he's done some other interesting pieces and worked with other interesting people. Emma Watson is actually doing things that are purposefully designed to help change society for the better. Why didn't we? I understand that it's about the Harry Potter celebrations, but even just five minutes of them talking about it would have been interesting because they are too young to be waxing lyrical about the golden age of their time when they were eight fucking years old fuck off <laughs> that's a no from george that is very much a no from me boots in done dusted and that is our show for this week ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us we had a a bit of a beating for the for the last part of that but we do apologize we'll try and lift it up for next week we'll hopefully both of us actually have uh, thoughts on the batman we're going to be talking about near dark a chain movie of the week I'm going to talk about the pirate movie. It's going to be good. Happy. So happy. We're singing and dancing and laughing. It's going to be great. Yeah. I really hate you. <laughs> I really hate you. I'm going to live tweet my responses. So if you're interested, cool. keep an eye out for that. Um, we talked about Elden Ring. We talked about Guardians of Justice. Harry Potter and the Devil's Advocate right at the end there. But yeah, I think next week, pre pre-warning, it's probably gonna be spoilers. So if you are spoiler sensitive for the Batman, come back to next week's show, week after, or whenever you've watched it. You know that we do our best to protect, but we aren't in control of the internet, at least not yet. We what you know, a couple of weeks. Give it time. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts, Travis? None from me. Um, I always give this warning. There might be a... We haven't had a chance to talk about this yet, but I am currently scheduled to go in for surgery next on that next Wednesday when we normally stream. So we might have to rearrange our schedule a little bit, but uh, do stay tuned to the socials, like our mm. Facebook page, and you can set up to that with... Um, if you like to watch the stream, or you just like to know when new podcasts will be available. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it may be next week that I start streaming Elden Ring as well, which will be on twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain if you want to come and watch me get beaten mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Look after yourselves. Good night. Good night.